to not just flirt with us, not just date with us, God, but to marry us, Lord, to bring us into this covenant relationship with you, Father, that is protected and nourished and nurtured and made deeper through your law, Father. And we just praise you for your law. It is the deepest blessing for in our lives, God, to, to relate to you, to connect with you, to love you, to love one another based on this covenant relationship that we have with you. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to hear your word this morning, Father. Help us to open our hearts, God. Help us to set aside those parts of ourselves, Lord, that are still holding on to our own way, Father, and help us to be open to your way, to the way of blessing, to the way of peace, to the way of deep and abiding joy, Lord Jesus. Open our hearts to you. In your son's name, amen. All right, well, we're continuing our series on the Exodus 10 Commandments. And if you all remember the introduction a few weeks ago, just a quick reminder, we introduced the Ten Commandments by saying that the Ten Commandments are a codification of the covenant relationship that God has with each believer and with us as a church. And if that sounds like a lot of sort of theological language, what I'm saying is the Ten Commandments are the way that God expresses the way he wants us to relate to him and to relate to each other. And if you recall, I compared that to a marriage covenant, right? When, when you get married, you, you love that person you're marrying, hopefully. You love that person. And the marriage is a way of codifying, of committing to, of, of creating a sign of, hey, this is a separated out relationship. This is a special relationship. I'm committing myself to you, whatever may come, right? In sickness and in health and poverty and wealth, whatever. I'm committed to you. This is an exclusive, special relationship that, I'm, that I have with you. You're my wife. You're my husband. I'm committed to you. Well, that's how God is with us, right? He has made a covenant relationship with you. And the Ten Commandments kind of lay the foundation for what that covenant looks like. And it's a covenant that ultimately finds its, its uh, fulfillment in, in Christ. And we talked about how Christ said, to his disciples, look, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish the covenant that I have with my people, but rather I've come to fulfill that covenant, right? And then he goes, and, and then he starts actually talking about very specifically these Ten Commandments, some of these Ten Commandments, and he gets to a, a core underlying principle, and the core underlying principle of the commandments, what, there was a a teacher of the law who came to Jesus one day, and he said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered a question with a question. And he said, well, how do you read it? How do you understand what is the greatest commandment of the, of the, of, the um, of Scripture, of the law? And the teacher and the, the expert said, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you're right. That's it. That is the summation of all the commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and I think I mentioned this before, but you'll notice in the Ten Commandments, the first four are about our relationship with God, right? And the remaining six are about our relationship with who? One another, right? How we treat and love one another, right? So 
this is all about, and, and I just want to right at the beginning remind us again that this is not about keeping rules, right? It's not about just robotically keeping r- rules. This is about our love relationship with God the Creator and our love relationship with one another. That's what these Ten Commandments are about. So let's look at, we're going to look at three commandments today. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. We're going to look at these three really brief commandments. They are, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Got it? Shall not murder, check. Shall not commit adultery, check. You shall not steal, check. Done. Got it. That's it, right? Anybody murdered lately? We're, we're good on that. No, no murdering, no adultery, stealing. It's kind of like, well, okay, Lord, great, got it. Let's pray. So what do we do with this? What, is this, what does this mean? So here's a, one of the working premises I want to I look at this morning. Actually, we're going to look at it through the teaching of Christ. And again, that's another principle that we mentioned before, that when we look at the Old Testament covenant, we look at the Old Testament law, the law and the prophets, we look at them through the lens of Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant, right? So we're going to look at these three laws through the lens of Christ's fulfillment. Uh, here's, a, here's a principle, and here's how things how we can kind of go wrong with God's covenant, covenantal law, particularly these three laws, because I'm willing to wager that probably no one in here has murdered anybody, right? So we can kind of just check that off and move on, right? But there's probably more to it than that. And, and the more to it is what? These laws are telling us how we are to love one another. So here's a premise. The premise is it's easier to keep the Hippocratic Oath. Anybody know what the Hippocratic Oath is that medical doctors take? Basically, the, the first line of it is, first, do no harm. Right? It's easier to do no harm than it is to actually heal somebody. You think that's true? Because to do no harm, you just stay hands off, right? You just back away. You just don't cause any harm. You don't do any harm to anybody. So that's, that's easy, right? Pretty easy not to murder somebody. Am I, am I wrong on this? Am I alone on this? <laughs> it's pretty easy. But it's harder to actually get in there and cut somebody open and get into the blood and the gore and the challenge and, and all the rest of it and actually do something that's going to make a difference for somebody and heal them, right? That's much harder. That's much more difficult. It's easy not to murder somebody. It's really hard to love people. Is that not true? Because... People are sinners. They're broken. They're needy. They're selfish, right? I mean, we're not that way, but other people are, right? (laughs) It's hard to love people, is it not? So I want to look at how Jesus looks at these commandments. And and really, I'm going to go back to Matthew 5, which is really Jesus' sort of own, his Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus is kind of revisiting the Mosaic law that Moses received where? He received it on Mount Sinai. So now Jesus does his own Sermon on the Mount, and he looks at the law from the context of his own fulfillment. But the challenge, there's a challenge here, and, and something that Jesus is really addressing in the context of this that I think is really important for you to understand before we dive into that scripture. And that is, again, it's easier to keep the Hippocratic Oath than it is to actually heal somebody. It's easier 
just keep the rules, check off the rule sheet, than it is to really engage and love people. It's easy to be religious, do all the right things, quote, whatever, however you, def- however you define that, and we're really good at redefining what the right things are, right? Even if we claim to know Scripture, we still have a really great way of redefining what the correct things are, and we define it on our own terms and what we're good at, and we sort of ignore the things that we, we fail in. So it's easy to keep that list, right? But it's hard to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. That's hard. It's easy to talk about, well, you know, we need to care for people. It's harder to actually really engage and love them as they are broken, sinful, hurtful. Maybe they've even hurt you. It's hard to love people that have hurt you, is it not? That's hard. So what tends to happen is we tend to go, when we're confronted with God's love for us and his desire for us to enter into relationship with him and relationship with each other, we tend to go religious. We tend to go to the external. We tend to want to just check off a list and keep our distance, keep our distance from God and keep our distance from each other because it gets messy. As soon as we try to engage with each other, it gets messy. We hurt each other's feelings. When we try to engage with God, we find out what a broken, awful, selfish person we are. And that gets really messy, right? We don't want to go there. So we just want to be religious and kind of keep it all on the surface. And this is a problem that Jesus is confronting in Matthew 5. And just to give you a flavor, he's really, you know, that what typifies this problem is the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are extremely religious people, right? They're the religious leaders of the day. They're very religious. But Jesus has a big problem with them. And Eventually, at some point, he calls them a brood of vipers and snakes. Right? That's, not a, that's not a good thing if the Son of God is calling you a snake. That's, that's a bad sign. So that's a big problem. Just, just to give you a taste of it, I want to look at Matthew 23, um, which I need to find. So let's go to Matthew 23. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm just going to read a little bit, enough of it to just give you a flavor Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. What are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. We're going to read one more. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what is Jesus confronting there? Jesus is confronting the fact that they've gone to the external. They're great at keeping the law, checking off the list, putting on the robes, having the long gown, you know, doing all the the ceremonial activity by rote. They're really great at that, but they've missed the entire point. The point is to love God and to love their neighbors. They've missed that entire point. And they be, in the process, they become hypocritical. 
As soon as you kind of go that way, you become one thing on the outside and something completely else on the inside. You know, you can just be full of all kinds of selfishness and self-indulgent and appear to be this very extremely religious person. So it's easier to do no harm. It's harder to heal, to engage. It's easy not to murder. It's harder to really love people, even in the tough times. That's harder, right? And we need God's help. So let's look at Matthew 5. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go to Matthew 5.21. And as I've already said, just before this, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law, but, I, but I've come to fulfill the law. And then he goes on to this next passage here, starting in 21, and he just starts going through the commandments, the primary commandments. And he starts off, the fir- it's interesting, the first one he starts with is the one that we're on this morning with the murder one. So, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoa. Okay. Don't murder somebody? Easy. Don't be angry at somebody? Ooh, that's a whole, this is a whole nother word. Jesus is taking us to a whole nother place now. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. All right, so Jesus goes from the external prohibition, do no harm, don't murder, to the much deeper level of, you know what, don't be angry with someone. And that word anger, that that has the idea, the feeling of rage. You know, I'm not talking about, ah, somebody's, kind of irritated you momentarily. I'm talking about deep rage, resentment. You know, that feeling that you just want to get back at somebody. Someone has really hurt you. Maybe maybe they haven't really hurt you. Maybe they've just cut you, they've raced you on the freeway and won. And you're just enraged by it. You know, you're just angry at them and you just want to get up next to them and bump them off the road. If you could that's if you could get away with that, you might do that, right? It's that kind of intense rage that you have somebody. And Jesus is saying, look, it's not about, you know, murdering somebody. It's just, the, it's just the end of the road. It's just the outward final end of what started with your own heart, what's going on on the inside, the rage that you feel. So you've already crossed the line that moment that you feel that rage, that intense hostility, that, that sense of you just want to get back at that person. Right? And Jesus says, you've already, you've already murdered them. That, that, you, that when you feel that, you are liable to judgment. And if you insult somebody, which has the idea of demeaning them, degrading, de- de- um, what's, the word de- what's the word I use? Denigrate. That's what, I like that word. Denigrate. It's, it has that idea of denigrating somebody. When you, when you put them down in your thoughts and in your mind, you put them less than you, okay? You've, Jesus is saying you've violated the commandment to not murder somebody. That's, that's hard. That's really harsh, is it not? A lot of uh, Bible expositors, a lot of Bible teachers will, will look at that and say, absolutely. It's, it's in fact, not only is it hard, it's impossible, which is why we need Christ and we need his death 
and resurrection and atonement to cover that, our sinful hearts. And that's absolutely true. Amen. Totally agree. That's absolutely true. But notice that Jesus doesn't go there first. Jesus doesn't go, okay, you're, you're enraged at somebody. You violated the commandment because you just have that intense anger or hostility or you've denigrated them or you've put them down and now you've broken what? The commandment to love your neighbor. How is that loving your neighbor? Right? That's what these commandments are about, is loving your neighbor. So now you've broken loving your neighbor. So does Jesus say, so therefore now go, go get on your knees and ask and pray for forgiveness. Confess your sin to me and ask for forgiveness. Is that where he goes next? No, he doesn't. Where does he go? Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, right? So for us, if we are going to the... If we're getting on our knees in front of the altar of the heavenly altar and we want to make our offering, what's our offering? Our offering is Christ's atonement for us. We want to, we want to take in Christ's atoning work on our behalf. And then right there, remember, oh, this person has something against me. I've offended somebody in some way. Jesus says, doesn't say, well, just stay there and receive forgiveness. He says, instead, go to your brother. Let me read again. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So yes, it's true. When we fail, when we blow it, we need to bring that to the Lord in confession and receive his forgiveness. That is absolutely true. But don't think you're done, right? And in fact, what Jesus says, even before that, if you know you've offended somebody or you know you've hurt somebody or you've harmed somebody, before you even have that conversation with Jesus, you need to go to that person and reconcile. Right? And there's a tendency, we have a tendency in the evangelical church, I think in particular, to be so focused on grace. And <laughs> trust me, great, I love grace. I'm happy to be under God's grace because if it weren't for his grace, I would be lost. It would be hopeless for me, right? But it's not, it's not just going to the Lord and receiving his grace. It's also about making it right, okay? And one of the ways we make it right when we have broken this love relationship, notice Jesus says, uses the term brethren. So the focus here is on believers, on fellow believers. Not that this doesn't apply to people who are unbelievers. I think it does. But the primary focus is on if you have a brother or a sister in Christ who you've offended and somehow you're aware of it, even if you're not too sure but you think there might be something there, just saying, look, go and check it out and make it right and then come to me, make your confession, and I'm faithful and just to forgive you from all unrighteousness, right? So our ultimate forgiveness comes from Christ and his atoning death. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't exempt us from the work of making it right when we violated the law to love our neighbor. Does that make sense? About tracking with that? So I want to give you some tips on how, you know, these are, I mean, I could spend a whole series on how to reconcile, right? It's, it's a big subject, but I'm just going to give you some top-line tips. Number one, go. That's the hardest step, is it not? If you know that someone has something against you, even if it's not your fault, right, but you, you, you think, ah, oh, I think there's something there, there's some kind of breakdown there, is it the hardest thing to do is just to go, to make the first move, to be the one who makes the first move toward a person? And that's 
that's really the point of reconcile, reconciling, is it not? Reconciling means coming back together again. And the only way you come back together again is to move forward, to go, to press into that relationship and go to that person. So first tip is just go. If you think there's something broken, something if there's some distance or something between you and a brother or sister in Christ, then you just need to make the first move. And, I, and go could mean go there physically to that person. It could mean send them a text. It could send, it means write a letter. It could give them a call. Whatever's appropriate for the relationship, but make it the move. Take the first step, okay? Number two, understand what your brother has against you, not what you think they have against you, okay? So this means you need to listen and not defend yourself, not try to, not try to explain why they don't have a problem with you, right? Don't you love it when someone comes to, to you to ask to, you know, say I'm sorry and, and ask for forgiveness and, and they say, well, I'm really sorry that you feel bad about this. Right? I, the, the, does that like just warm your heart? When, if, you're, if someone's done something really wrong to you and they come to you and say, well, I'm sorry that you feel bad about this. Well, what does that mean? You're sorry that I feel bad about this? Like you're not going to own any part of this? You're not going to take any responsibility for the harm that you've done to me? So you need to... You, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting to the next one. But, but number one, you need to understand what your brother has against you. Don't try to defend it. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try to convince that person why they shouldn't think or feel what they're thinking or feeling. But instead, just go to them and listen. Say, hey, I feel like there's distance between us. I think there's something, maybe there's something broken. I don't know, something not weird. Or, you know, hey, I know, we both know there's an issue here. I know that, you know, I've hurt you or, or whatever. I want to really hear your side of it. I understand how I might have offended you, or I want—I know that I've offended you. I want to understand a little bit more clearly what, how it looks from your perspective. Does that make sense? So your first thing you need to do is hear their side of the story and not try to just try to explain to them why they're wrong. Okay, just listen, hear, listen their side of the story. Number three, own and confess your sin to your brothers with words. So this—that's where I was going just now—is is when when you. When you've heard them and you've listened to what, what their side of the story is, figure out what's true. Understand what part of that do you think is really true, and then own that. And if part of the truth of that is that you have done something wrong, then just own it and confess it and say, hey, I'm sorry. I'm not, don't say, I'm sorry that you feel bad. Say, I'm sorry I did this that made you feel bad. Right? Own what your part is, what you did, okay? Number four, repent and rebuild trust over time with your actions. You can, you can listen really well. You can hear their side of the story. You can understand what your part is really well, very clearly. You can acknowledge it and confess it and say, hey, I'm really sorry. You're right. I blew it. I apologize for that. But that's only, half, that's only a step. Then you need to really walk that out and demonstrate that you've really shifted and that you've repented from how you've blown it through not your words, but through your behavior. So one step, the first step is words. Hey, I'm sorry, I blew it. I apologize, forgive me. But then you need to really do the step of action, which shows that person, hey, you really get it and you've really changed. You've changed your direction. You're really repentant and you're taking action to not harm that relationship again. 
Make sense? With me? Okay. Am I losing you? No? Okay. Uh, and then my last point I want to make is forgive fast and trust slow. Oftentimes I think we confuse forgiveness with trust. Okay? Because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you trust them. If somebody violates you, you can forgive them, but that doesn't mean you should trust them. Particularly you shouldn't trust them right away. They need to earn trust. Forgiveness is given free by grace, same way God gives us forgiveness, by grace. But trust is something that is earned through behavior. So if somebody violates you, if somebody abuses you, God requires that you forgive them. He doesn't require that you trust them. They have to earn that trust over time and demonstrate that they're not going to abuse you anymore. Does that make sense? Okay, so and vice versa, if you're the one who has violated somebody and you say, ah, I'm sorry, I blew it, forgive me, and they forgive you, but then it feels like, well, but they're still kind of holding back, well, you've got to earn their trust, right? You can't just say, forgive me, and now just take me all the way in 100%, you know, just get over it. We're moving on now. You know what? You have to demonstrate real repentance in your behavior before they're going to trust you, and that has to take over time. Amen? All right, so thou shalt not murder, including if, if, you, if you blow it and you get angry or you, or you break the love or you denigrate somebody, you need to reconcile. You need to make that right. And then once you've done all you can do to reconcile, by the way, you can't ultimately aren't in control of reconciling. You're only in control of your side of it, what you can do. The other person may not be willing to reconcile. And if they're not willing to reconcile, they're not willing to reconcile. You, you move on, right? But you've done what you can do, and then you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, by the way, I blew this here. This is how I blew it with this person. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for, for restoring me. Pray for that other person. Ask the Lord to restore them and encourage them. And Lord willing, you'll reconcile in the relationship, and you'll be reconciled with the Lord, which is the whole point of the Ten Commandments, right? To be reconciled with God and be reconciled with one another. All right. So that's thou shalt not murder. Going on, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, here we go. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ugh. Now, Jesus really takes this hard, right? Okay, it's one that's easy, right, not to commit adultery generally, right? But to not look at a woman with lustful intent, that's hard, is it not? And by the way, it goes both ways, ladies. I mean, Jesus is calling out the guys here, but I'm just saying, right? It's, it's, it can happen really quick. It happens like in a nanosecond, does it not? But here's what Jesus' point is. It's about the heart. The behavior is just the end result way down at the end of the road. But it begins at the root of it is our heart. And again, same thing. It, Jesus doesn't jump to, well, if, if you do that, just come to me and confess it and I'll forgive you, which he will. Okay, I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying what Jesus does as he goes through these commandments is he, sticks, he, he takes a step of, 
of reconciling in terms of anger and wrath, and he takes a step of protection in terms of looking at people lustfully. So what's his remedy here in verse 29? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What? <laughs> Come on now, right? I mean, I, I, let's, be, let's be real. Okay, let's just be real for a moment. If we all obeyed this to the letter, we'd all be blind and handless. Are, am, I, am, I, am I the only one here? that we? So is Jesus just using hyperbole here? Does he not really not mean this? Well, he is, I think he is using hyperbole, but here's the point. Before you just kind of write it off as hyperbole, I was like, oh, he's just trying to make a point. He's just speaking in extreme language to make a point. Think about it this way. And I think this is, this is how Jesus means it. If looking at someone, first of all, let me back up a little bit to the, the larger principle. larger principle is love your neighbor. How does looking at someone lustfully, again, context is adultery, violate loving your neighbor? Well, it violates your closest neighbor, right? It violates your spouse. I and mean, by the way, if you're not married, if you're single, it violates your future spouse. If you, build, if you spend your youth and that it's a habit of looking at the opposite sex or even the same sex lustfully, if you build a habit in that, then one day that has the potential for violating yourself because that's not a habit you want to build on, right? So, but most of us are married, and if we're looking at someone who's not our wife with lustful intent, we're violating our spouse, are we not? I mean, and the, the ultimate end of the road is adultery, which is the ultimate violation of our spouse, correct? So, so, that, so that's the underlying principle. The goal here is to love our spouse really well. So the principle is only have eyes for our spouse. Probably jumping again. Um, no, rather treasure your spouse with eyes only for him or her. All right, so the principle is rather than looking at other people with lustful intent, you need to only have eyes for him or her. And if you st- struggle with that, I think all of us struggle with that, if we're honest. I think we all struggle with that. If you struggle with that in one form or another, Jesus says the rem- remedy is cut your eye out, cut your hand off. Now, that sounds crazy and extreme, but think about it this way. If you were, if you were going to yank your eye out the next time you looked at at someone of the opposite sex with lustful intent, what would you do to prevent that from happening? If you knew that's what was going to happen, if you were committed, okay, I'm going to rip my eye out the next time this happens, what would you do to avoid it? Right? I think you would do all kinds of things to avoid it. You'd cancel your cable subscription. You would put blinders on. You'd, you'd do what I do with my car blinder. I've shared this before, right? When on my way to work, there's a whole series of really bad posters on the 60 freeway. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? When I get to that section, about three miles before I get to that section, boom, my, my visor comes down. What's on the back of your visor when you flip your visor down? It's a big old yellow warning sign. Warning! This may cause death or injury, okay? So that's what I do. I flip that down, warning, this may cause death or injury, right? What are you willing to do 
short of tearing your eye out. Maybe instead of canceling your cable subscription, maybe what you do is throw your TV away completely. Now, I'm not saying you have to cancel your cable subscription or throw your TV away. I'm saying whatever your point of vulnerability is, wherever it's vulnerable for you, you need to block it. You need to, in a figurative way, tear your eye out. Think about it in those extreme ways. I kind of listed a couple things here. Look away, make no provision, flee. So let's take a look at those. Look away. It's interesting. We are apex predators. And when you think of, when you compare us to the animal kingdom, apex predators have two eyes that face forward. So we're built that way. Prey animals have two eyes on the sides of their head, and, they, and they, they have these this real broad periphery so they can see predators before they get chewed up for lunch, right? So we're, we're, we're apex predators. We look forward, and we, sorry, and we have a very focused, narrow field of vision. It's much narrower than you think it is because you're moving your eyes and your head around a lot. So you think you have a pretty wide view of things. But if you look at focus in, okay, focus in, let's do a quick, quick little experiment. Focus on the, that speaker over there. I, I didn't check this before, so this might not work, but maybe it will. <laughs> let, let me just make sure it will work. By, let, let's, 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 do a little, let's do a test. Let's do a little lab. Okay, focus on that speaker. You all focus there? Okay, how many fingers am I holding? How many fingers do I extend? Don't look at me, look at the speaker. How many fingers am I holding out? Can anybody tell? Nobody can tell. Okay. Okay. Now, focus on the speaker. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. How many fingers do I have out? Anybody know? Without looking at me? Nobody can get it, right? Notice how how narrow your field of vision is. We don't realize how narrow our field of vision is because we're constantly turning our head and moving our eyes. So principle number one, just look away. You don't have to look that far away to not be looking, to be looking. So if there's something all of a sudden on the TV screen, on the billboard, on the computer monitor, whatever, just go to the corner, and you're probably not going to be able to tell. You'll, you may have a sense, a sense of, enough of a sense to know that you've got to eject or do whatever you've got to do, but just look away, all right? It's, a, it's, it's an amazing principle. It's very helpful. The reality is you actually already have blinders, you just got to look away. Don't turn toward what you know is going to incite lustful thoughts, all right? Make no provision. Paul, Paul uses that phrase. Make no provision for the flesh. Make no pro- don't, don't do things that you know are going to lead you down the road to temptation. If you str- for example, if you struggle with alcohol, alcohol is a temptation for you. You have a particular weakness, a struggle for alcohol. Well, it's probably not a good idea for you to hang out in the bar all night long, right? Well, I'm just meeting with friends. Uh, if, you have, if, you, if you have a problem with alcohol and you're meeting with friends at the bar, what's going to happen? Right? What other problems do we have? We have problems with alcohol. We have, you know, a drug, a, a person who's struggling with particular drugs, if you're struggling with, with designer drugs or, or opiates or whatever, and you, that's a point of vulnerability for you, you probably don't want to make, you know, the easy doctor who writes subscriptions, you know, the go-to doctor, you probably don't want to make him your GP, right? That's just, that's making provision for sin. 
Right? You don't want to make provision for sin. If you struggle with food, you, you use food rather than enjoying food as a blessing from God. By, all, by the way, all these things are a blessing from God when we use them correctly, right? according to, the, to his law, which is to love one another. When we use God's blessings to love one another, they're awesome, they're joyful. A love, an intimate relationship with your husband or, or, or wife is a blessing. It's an awesome thing, right? It's, but it's when we violate, when we harm the principle of loving your neighbor, that's when it goes from a blessing to a curse. So if you struggle with food, you use food not in the way it's intended, but as a way to sort of medicate yourself, use food kind of as your God. It becomes an idol to you. How do you not make provision for that? Well, you don't go through the drive-thru at In-N-Out probably, right? All right, so, all right, I'm, is this making sense? Yeah. So what, what, is, what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying the moment you look at someone lustfully, you're doomed to hell? Well, yes, unless you put your faith and hope and trust in Christ. If you've done that, then his blood covers that. You, Jesus doesn't leave it there. You need to go beyond that. You need to make no provision for it. You need to look away. You need to look towards Christ. You need to look at your amazing, beautiful wife. So uh, we were at, out at the uh, mall yesterday, and Donna wanted to run into a store and do some quick shopping, and I sit out in the car and read read my notes, read some verses. And, uh, of course, I'm reading through the, this exact passage, and kind of in a corner of my eye, I go, oh, man, there's a really cute chick walking this way. And I, and I started like, well, you know, I'm in the middle of this passage. And I started to like look away, you know. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's my wife. <laughs> I'm like, she's awesome. She's beautiful. Blessing. God is a God, God, is God of blessing and joy. All right. So it's not that God is withholding from us. And it's not that he's just some horrible taskmaster who wants us just to follow the rules. No, he wants us to engage and be close to him and, and with each other to love one another properly. But it's love in the context of a covenant relationship. And this covenant is designed to protect that love and to keep it healthy and make it deep and blessing. All right, so let's go to the last one. So Jesus addresses murder and lust very directly. Very, very directly. In terms of thou shalt not steal, it's more, he's more kind of makes an allusion to it. And he kind of, without naming it, I think he gets to the underlying principle of why someone ultimately would steal. And he kind of does this in a number of places, but the one I'm going to focus on is 19 through 21. 19 through 21. Am I in the right place? Matthew 5. 19 through 21. Anger. I'm in the wrong place. I am totally in the wrong place. I think it's, sorry, Dave. I probably threw, threw you off unless you figured it out. It is chapter 6, 19 through 21. Sorry about that. <laughs> so go to, if you have your Bibles, go to chapter 6. 19 through 21. This is why it's good to bring your Bibles because you can't always depend on the pastor to have his, have his media right. Um, chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust 
destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right, thou shall not steal. Generally, pretty easy unless things have gotten really bad or you've got, gotten very desperate. Most people who are stealing are got, have gotten to a place of really intense desperation. And it's usually the end result of breaking, violating a lot of these other commandments that are focused on loving God and loving your neighbor, right? Pretty soon you start, st- someone might steal from their family members to support, you know, a drug habit. You might steal because you just flat out don't, you, you need to eat. You know, it usually it comes from a place, a desperation and its final sort of outward expression but where it starts in terms of the heart and the attitude and the posture is, where's your treasure? Is your treasure in this world? Is your treasure about having in this world as much as you possibly can have? Is, is your focus on having the latest? For me, it's gadgets, right? I love gadgets. I love technology. Just ask my wife. I've, I've, I've got her using the Apple TV remote control, and she's, she's trying to use it because she loves me, but she's she's hating it she's yeah she's not in her head she she agrees with babe she hates the apple tv remote control it's just awful but i think apple apple's just cool um so she she loves me so she's trying to learn it and i completely lost my point (laughs) gadgets things if 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 your if your intent if your desire if you're the way you're trying to fulfill your heart through your house and your car and your 401k, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? Ultimately, you're going to be disappointed because ultimately it's all going to burn. And long before it burns, you're just going to pass away from this, from this world, right? Over and over again in the New Testament, both Christ and the apostles reaffirm. And Christ himself talks about, actually, let's even go here. Let's skip down to verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how, do, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Key phrase there is, O ye of little faith. What is our hope on? What are we putting our hope in? Are we putting our hope openly, ultimately in our 401k? I'm all for 401ks. I'm all for saving money. We should. We have a responsibility to save for our retirement. We have a responsibility to save money, even if, even if you're 12 years old. I would say start saving, right? We have that responsibility, but is that what our ultimate hope is in? Because it can all go like that. That kind of happened in the last 
Great Recession, right? A lot of people were on the verge of retiring, and, them, and they, had, they still had their accounts in some high-risk stocks or, or not real super conservative things. And boom, they lost a big old chunk, and they put off their retirement for another five years. And that's just, that's just a low-level kind of deal. Much, much worse can happen, right? You can just get run over by a bus, and then it's all over. And is that what our ultimate hope and trust in, or is our open hope and trust in the Lord and in his kingdom? And that really takes us full circle to what is, what are these commandments about? I said in, in the introduction to the series, I said the commandments is a call to relationship, is a call to relationship with God, and is a call to relationship to one another. And it's a very special kind of relationship. It's a relationship that's based on love, and it's a love that needs to be protected so that when we get angry with someone, we go to them and we reconcile. And when we've reconciled, we go to the Lord and say, Lord, help me not to be angry like that. Show me how, what's going on there with me that, that I feel like I have to be in control. I have to have things my way. I have to try to control people and make them a certain way. And then when they're not, I get angry at them. Help me in my heart change the premise, the, the foundation of what my motives are. Right? Help me not to just constantly lusting at every person I look at. And help me to think about, be aware of how that denigrates my spouse. God, give me eyes only for my spouse, Lord. Help me to look away otherwise. Lord, help me stop to stop, keep me from trusting in this world. I mean, we get messages 24-7, right? Just buy this car and everything will be good and happy and you'll be blessed. That's all you got to do. Buy this house, buy this car, buy this cheese, and all your life will be satisfied, right? We hear that message all day long, every day. And we have to be very purposeful about putting that aside and repenting from that and say, Lord, my hope is in you. My hope is in the eternal kingdom. My hope is in my justification that I have in Christ. That's where my hope is. And, if you, and, and as you give me blessings, as you provide a meal for me, help me to share that with my family and with my friends and with the brethren. And let's, let's let that all be a ultimately boomerang back to you in praise. That's what the commandments are about, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Amen? Let's pray. So, Lord, we love you, God. Father, we know 